From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There's a radical new way to pay for college. Rather than take on loans, students pledge some of their future earnings for cash up front. The inspiration for this? If David Bowie could raise capital and pledge his future earnings, what I thought back then was, why cannot anybody do that? Experimenting with the approach in Colorado. Then someone set fire to a charming old church in rural Morgan County. And what we can learn about the president from his golf game. Sports writer Rick Riley, who spent much of his career in Colorado, investigates the many club championships Trump claims he's won. It's insanity. It's so over the top. We don't even know how to deal with this in golf. It's never happened. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a radical new way to pay for college, and the gist is that students become investments. The Department of Education has floated the idea, members of Congress are debating it, and a handful of schools, including one in Colorado, are trying it. The technical term is income share agreements, ISAs. Students get tuition money now by promising some of their future income. I thought they explained it pretty well on Good Morning America recently. This particular structure essentially takes the government loans out of the equation, so students become stock, in a sense, selling a piece of their future to these investors. We'll hear a little later from one of those investors, a man who has studied the idea for decades. First, to the Colorado school piloting this, Colorado Mountain College is actually a network of 11 campuses, from Rifle to Leadville, Steamboat Springs to Vail, and they're using ISAs as a way to help undocumented students like Gabby Saros, ineligible for federal loans. It now helps me a lot more because now I can take like as many classes as I want and then finish sooner and then worry about the bill as soon as I graduate. Saros came to the U.S. when she was four. She's a DACA recipient, meaning for now she's protected from deportation. Over the years, her parents worked hard to pay their bills, but it wasn't easy. Sarah says she didn't want to add to their burden and so decided to pay for college on her own. But because she couldn't afford a full course load, it was going to take her a lot longer to get through. The ISA changed that. Now I'm more like focused on going to school rather than just like focusing on the money. Which is exactly what Colorado Mountain College wants, says Chief Operating Officer Matt Gianeschi. Our hope being that they can finish on time um, and enter the workforce as quickly as possible. CMC uses charitable donations to pay for the program. If graduates earn $30,000 a year or more, they pay back 4% of their income for about five years. If they earn less or aren't working, they don't pay. Gianeshi expects that initially the program will operate at a loss. A handful of other schools, including Purdue University in Indiana, use income share agreements, but for a broader student population. And they may have David Bowie to thank. What David Bowie did back in the late 90s. Okay, before he continues, let me say this is Miguel Palacios, known internationally as a champion of ISAs. He started a company called Lumni that specializes in them. He's also a professor of economics at the University of Calgary. So what Bowie did was he raised capital and pledged uh, his future earnings in exchange. So this was not a straight debt. It was an instrument that resembled more equity, in which uh, the total value of what he would pay would depend on the value of his royalties in the future. 
He needed money right away. He sensed that he had musical promise. And so he said, give me a bunch of money right now, and then you can benefit from my future record sales. That's what he did. Although by then, his promise had been realized. Ha, okay. (laughs) He was a sure bet. It was more of a sure bet, yes. And you thought, my goodness, this is a power we could harness in other arenas. Take me through your thinking. Well, if David Bowie could raise capital and pledge his future earnings, what I thought back then was, why cannot anybody do that who is expected to earn future earnings? And the group that I thought first was students. Students uh, are investing in getting future earnings. So they should be prime suspects for receiving capital up front in exchange of those future earnings. You're originally from Colombia, and I understand that you saw... Uh, the state of higher education there, and you wanted to do something about it. What did you see that made you so passionate about this? Well, what I saw was that higher education opened many doors, and it was a very valuable degree to achieve. And yet, talented people who could benefit a lot from these degrees were not getting it because of lack of funding. And so I thought it was a waste that such talent would not develop fully because they didn't have the funding to study higher education. Student loans just really aren't a thing in many other countries. There's much less availability than in the U.S., and they're also much more expensive than in the U.S. So if you think that the U.S. has a problem with its student loans, these other countries have a much bigger problem in the sense that they are much more expensive and much more restricted. That is, the interest rates are really bad, huh? Interest rates are larger, forgiveness conditions are smaller. Well, this is fascinating. There's so much to explore with you right now. David Bowie was a known commodity. There was just no doubt that he was going to make a lot of money into the future. Aren't students less of a sure bet? Absolutely. Any one particular student is less of a sure bet. And that was true of you and me when we were students, and it was true of David Bowie before he made it big. So it's true that any particular person is not a sure thing. And that's why if income share agreements are going to grow, investors would be wise to do income share agreements with many, many students Mm -hmm. so as to take the particular risk of any one person not doing well. You're telling people they should diversify if they get involved as investors in this. Absolutely. They should diversify. And in in fact, that's part of the value that income share agreements add. Any one person, you or me, when we were 18, carry a lot of risk in our future earnings. And so we, we don't know at that point whether we're going to do really well or not at all. We know that on average, we should be okay if we're, say, taking a field of study in a reputable university You can more or less have an idea of what your earnings are going to be. But ahead of time, it's really hard to know whether you're going to be in the average or you're going to be much better than average or worse than average, whether you're going to continue with a master's degree, whether you're going to win the lottery. All of these unknowns add up to a lot of risk when we're young. And when a student takes a loan they're in some sense compounding that risk, right? Because it's the same effect as when someone takes a huge loan to buy a house. If the value of the house goes up, they did great. But if the value of the house goes down, they are bankrupt. 
The flip side is someone like an investor who can invest in, say, a thousand contracts can get rid of that risk in the same way that an insurance company get rid of the particular risk that you might have crashing tomorrow. Inherently, doesn't this favor investment in the brain surgeon or the engineer whose earning prospects are incredibly good versus investment in the poet or the person who studies, I don't know, Latin? So implicit in that question is the idea that the poet and the brain surgeon would get the same contract. But that would not be the case. If we assume that expected earnings for poets are half as much as expected earnings for surgeons, and that might not be the right number, the poet would be asked to sign a contract that is more like 4% for every $10,000 finance, whereas the brain surgeon might be asked to sign a contract that is more like 2% for $10,000. You're taking perhaps a larger chunk of the earnings of the poet. Yes, that's correct. That's a percentage of their income. And that reflects the risks, their future earning potential. Again, from the standpoint of an investor who is making money available so that a young person can go to school, I can imagine wanting to screen that young person thoroughly. Health problems that could mean a shorter life. How much should an investor know about whom they're investing in, and how much should that student reveal about themselves? So first, it's true that investors will want to know as much as possible of every person that they're financing with an income share agreement, but there are practical and legal limits on what they can do. For instance, in the United States, they cannot use gender as a criteria, but they definitely need to include some big items. Otherwise, they're going to make big mistakes in their pricing Those two items are the university where the student is attending and the field of study. These two have a dramatic predictive power on their future earnings and should be included. And it occurs to me that it's not like a, a bank in a traditional loan could ask any of those health questions either. Does this mean that someone could wind up paying more over time than they would if they had just gotten a traditional loan? Yes. So income share agreements are a trade in which someone agrees to pay more if they do really well in exchange for paying less if they do worse. So you can think of them as trading payments from when your income is low to when your income is high, as opposed to loans when the amount that you're supposed to pay is constant regardless of whether you do well or not. Is there the possibility that this winds up exploiting disproportionately low-income people? As with any financial instrument, that's a possibility that exists. Now, to the extent that there are multiple providers and the appropriate regulations exist, which, and in particular, in the bills that have been written about income share agreements, there's been provisions precisely to put limits on the percentage of income that someone has to commit in exchange of some funding. For investors, is this a big risk, a medium risk? Is this low risk? So for investors right now, this is a medium to high risk as this is an instrument that has little track record. 
Now, the track record that exists, for example, in Lumni has been good enough that Lumni has been able to continue raising capital over the last 17 years. This is the company you co-founded. This is the company that I co-founded. Now, I, I want to add here that many investors in the beginning have a philanthropic inclination. Mm. And so these were contracts that by design were not supposed to offer high returns. Instead, they were supposed to become a sustainable way for financing higher education. The jury is still out on how these contracts are going to perform in financial markets when there is no philanthropic inclination for funding them. Miguel, thanks so much for being with us. What David Bowie song should we go out on? <laughs> you know, I'm not a fan of David Bowie, so I wouldn't oh, know which songs. <laughs> the truth is revealed. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. I appreciate Well, I'll choose one, but thanks for being with us. Uh, thank you. Have a good one. Miguel Palacios may have questionable music taste, but he is a professor of finance at the University of Calgary Business School. He's also co-founder of Lumni, which connects investors with students who need help with tuition, so-called income share agreements. Colorado Mountain College is experimenting with them. The story is part of Disruptors, our coverage of new ideas, changes, if you will, in business. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. It might seem a little early in the year for something like this to come across your TV. 20 seconds to go. Hand off, left side, touchdown, hey! Taylor Hayton, touchdown. That's not from the NFL, but from the Women's Football Alliance National Championships last weekend in Golden. Although Colorado played host, no local teams qualified, but the mile-high blaze came awfully close. They were one game away. For some perspective on semi-pro women's football, Blaze owner and GM Win Flato Domini is here. Hi, Win. Hey there. You're playing the same football as the men. The main difference between your team and the Broncos is money. Money. Your players aren't getting paid at this point. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. Our players actually pay to play. How does how does that work? Well, um, each season the girls um, pay a registration and end up paying around two thousand dollars a season uh, just to play. So they have to love this. It's a passion. It's a passion. And that means that they have a full-time jobs, I gather. Oh, absolutely. A lot. Of, we have a lot of mothers, grandmothers, um, doctors, nurses, students, you name it. Um, full-time jobs and going to school and playing football. A lot to juggle, I gather. Very much so. Very much so. You have similar equipment and padding to the NFL unlike the Legends Football League. That was another women's <laughs> football organization. Correct. Um, we are pretty much identical to the men um, on the field. We play NCAA college rules. Um, we're padded up just like them and hit just like them. 
What was the Legends League? Just remind folks. Uh, that's the LFL. Um, they play in. It was uh, bikini type clothing attire before. Um, this last season, they switched to yoga pants. Um, but we are full pads. We look just like the Broncos when we're out on the field. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Legends League? Mm. Um, there are some tremendous athletes out there um, that are playing the sport, and more power to them if that's what they choose to do. Um, I'm never going to bash another female for playing you know, a sport. I think it's great for them. However, I'm focused on bringing football to, to the attention of the city of Denver. I mentioned padding in particular. I think that that connects logically to the question of concussions. Mm -hmm. So you are encouraging more women and more girls to get into a sport that some parents are pulling away from at this point for boys and girls. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that. Well, I think that um, as with any sport, if you are interested in putting your, your daughter in football, I think you need to do the proper um uh, research about who your coach is going to be and the products that you're, you're going to be using for your daughter. Um, finding a coach that's heads up certified and that's going to teach your daughter how to hit properly and to take a hit and to get a helmet that um, will protect her is crucial. I mean, that's your child's brain. Spend the money on a great helmet and do what's right. Uh, tell me about this heads up certified. Uh, that is some sort of training that coaches get. Sure, sure. Um, coaches will, will go and take classes on how, to, like I said, how to properly um, hit and how uh, to teach children to take hits. Uh, you think sometimes kids will lean in with their head first and you can only imagine what's going to happen with that. So it's important that our coaches are teaching children properly from the gate. I mean, you can take all sorts of steps. You can have all sorts of equipment. Fundamentally, there's still going to be the risk of head injury. That never really goes away, does it? Sure. That's with any sport. That can be with tennis. Are more girls playing football in school now? What have oh, you seen? Man, it's 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 growing tremendously. Um, Utah has the biggest youth girls football league um, in the U.S. It's huge. Um, in Denver, we are starting a youth girls football league. Uh, my head coach, Rob Sandlin, um, coaches a boys league here and is just now starting a girls youth league that will be taking off this fall. What do you think explains that trend? What's behind it? I think people are, are starting to buy into the fact that girls can do the same thing boys can do. Um, we're athletes just as well. Um, I think the whole women's soccer movement has really taken off and has put that in the face of parents and kids are going, wait, I can do this? There's been some uh, some excitement, some movement lately in women's soccer, wouldn't you say? But oh, yeah. you, you think that's a tide, in other words, that uh, raises all boats. In, sure, in I women's think it sports. helps absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think I think any any exposure we can get um, for women is tremendous. You've said that uh, popularity for the Mile High Blaze, the team that you run, has grown exponentially over the last five years. What about spectators? Uh, what kind of enthusiasm are you seeing from them? Well, I remember when I started with this team, um, we had maybe 25 people in the stands, 30 people. Now when you come to our games, our stands are completely packed. We have a line to get into the gate. 
Um, it is a huge family event, and we make it a, a production. It's like going to a college football game. It's a blast. What are the sorts of venues, uh, stadiums that you play in? We Our home stadium is Five Star Stadium in Thornton. So it's for Thornton High School, um, but it's a gorgeous stadium. Uh, we have food trucks that come in there on Saturday nights. We have a DJ. We have cheerleaders. Uh, we have performers. Um, color guards come in and present the colors for us. It's, it's a production. It's amazing. And you think about that production as part of this. Let's talk about the prospects for girls in particular who get in at a young age. Uh, it strikes me that it's a tougher maybe career path or path in general for them to follow as they as they progress in years. Is that true, simply that the prospects diminish? Um, that's a tough one because I just had a 52-year-old retire. Huh. From our team. So we've got women well into their 40s that are playing and are absolute animals on the field. Um, Tell me about this 52-year-old. Well, her name is Sheila, and um, she is now our mascot this season. It's her first season being retired. And let me tell you, you know, 50, you would never know she's 52 because she can hit just like a 20-year-old. She's a people mascot or she's in a kind of... Uh, She's in a mascot suit now. Um, Blue Inferno is our mascot. And what is Blue Inferno? Um, Is it a... It's a horse. A horse. Uh Okay. Yeah. So some allegiance perhaps you feel to the Broncos. I know that you got a shout out from the Broncos and from the governor recently. What is the relationship between the Mile High Blaze and the Broncos? And, And do you sense a simpatico there? Well, um, I, I hadn't had a lot of luck with the Broncos. I'm, I'm going to be honest. Um, I had reached out and it just kind of didn't go anywhere. And uh, we recently had a article written about us in the Colorado Sun by Carol McKinley. And lo and behold, I, I got some phone calls from the Broncos and I'm excited to where we are possibly going to go. The Broncos gave us shout outs on their social media, which was amazing. Yeah, I couldn't ask lot, for more. A lot more. of followers. Yes. They <laughs> they gave us a signed football and uh, put us in touch with their grant people to apply for a grant through them. So I'm thrilled. Would it be your goal to play at Broncos Stadium <laughs> uh, to somehow draw some of their audience as well? My number one goal and has been since I own this team was to play a mini football game at halftime during a Broncos game, just so Denver and Colorado can see who we are and what we do and that we play football just like the men. Uh, There is also a Women's Football Alliance team in Colorado Springs. That's the Rocky Mountain Thundercats. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, you've put the intention out there for sure. Sure. Uh, Where would you like to see the Blaze go from here beyond uh, that exhibition? Oh, yeah. gosh. I, I just want us to keep growing and to keep opening doors for girls to be able to play football and to know that there is a place for them after high school that they can continue on. Did you feel that as a girl, that you had for, the opportunity? For football? Mm-hmm. No, no. Especially coming from Texas. Absolutely not. That opportunity was not open to you? No, sir. Thanks for being with us, Wynn. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Wynn Flato Domini is the owner and general manager of the Mile High Blaze, one of Colorado's semi-pro women's football teams. President Trump's relationship with the truth is the subject of a new book. It is not an investigation of his taxes or his campaign promises, but of his golf game. 
Commander in Cheat, How Golf Explains Trump is the latest from longtime Sports Illustrated columnist and ESPN contributor Rick Riley. The book also takes a swing at other presidents who played golf. Rick Riley grew up in Boulder. Early in his career, he worked for the Daily Camera at the Denver Post. And over the decades, he has had the opportunity to play golf with Donald Trump. I'm not even sure you'd call it golf because he takes mulligans whenever he wants them. One time he made a six and made me write down a four. He plays really fast. He doesn't putt out. He, he's in his own cart and just flies off and you sort of try to just hang on. It's kind of like he's the tornado and you're the trailer. And at the end, everybody tells me the same thing happened to me. You owe him 20 bucks. And he's like, yeah, I kicked your ass today. But then he buys you lunch and he's kind of charming. And then he starts introducing you around. Like he doesn't just lie about himself. He he lies about you. Like he'll be, this is Rick Riley. He's the managing editor of Sports Illustrated. This is Rick Riley. He's the publisher of Sports Illustrated. I'm like, no, I'm not. Why are you, why are you telling people this? He's like, ah, it sounds better. That's life with Donald Trump. You talked about him taking a mulligan. Uh, for the non-golf folks out there, explain what that means. It's kind of like a freebie, I guess. Mulligan is usually just the first shot of the day on the first tee box. And if you don't like it, some games will let you take another one. And then you can play that one. And, you know, most guys allow the mulligan. I think it's protected under the Constitution. He took mulligans on the 4th, 11th, 13th, 17th. One time he took a gimme chip in. So a gimme putt is, okay, it's a gimme. Pick it up. I concede you're going to make that little one-foot putt. He wasn't even on the green. And I'm playing against him in a bet. And he goes, I guess that makes this good. And we were playing total score bet. And I'm like, did you just take a gimme chip in? Because that's a first in history. And he goes, oh, I never miss those. But really, because his caddies kick his ball out of any tough lie or throw it out of the bunkers or th- he kicks it out of the rough so much himself, he calls himself Pele. <laughs> Or they, the caddies call him Pele. So I'm like, you would have never made that chip. But by then, he's got this golf cart that goes super fast, and you, you, it's gone. The moment is gone, and he ends up taking 20 bucks off you. But it's just instructive because he doesn't think the rules apply to him. A lot of people in the book go, I tried to tell him, hey, we don't cheat. I'm not going to cheat like that. And he would always say the same thing, which is, the guys I play with, you got to cheat them before they cheat you. And I sometimes think that's how he runs the presidency. He thinks everybody, every negotiation, they're trying to con you. So he's got to con you first. And I think that's true with interviews, uh, his taxes, investigations, the Russians. It's all this game he he thinks he's got to get one over on you before you get one over on him. Let me say this, that golf is very different from, say, foreign affairs. I mean, it's very possible that Vladimir Putin is trying to cheat. Uh, unlike someone who might be on a golf course. So is it an apples to oranges comparison? I guess it's I guess it's possible, but he's a guy that just has to win. So I talked to a couple of psychiatrists and I said, you know, we don't have this in golf because golf is the easiest sport to cheat at. And because it's so easy, it's come up, you know, in the 600 years it's existed as a game of, of gentlemen and ladies. We don't cheat each other. You'd rather cut off your arm. I can remember my dad saying you'd rather cut off your hand than cheat your friends. But he cheats like a three-card money dealer. 
cheat appears in the title of your book. It's obviously a loaded word. Um, how much evidence did you feel you had to gather before you could use that term? And help us understand the research, the interviews that went into this. Well, for every hundred people I talked to, 99 had a great story about Trump. Whether you were red, blue, left, right, whatever, old, young, they all had stories about him cheating on the golf course or lies he told or lies about winning championships or lies about who they were. And so they all, but of the 99 stories, maybe 50 would let me use it. So I'd always say, well, what do you mean? You just told me this great story. And they'd like, well, I don't want to lose my passport or I like what he's doing for my taxes. So everybody had a cheating story. Using cheat in the name of the book doesn't even start to cover it. This guy cheats whether you like it or not, whether you're watching or not. The man cheated Tiger Woods in a match. He, he tried to cheat Tiger Woods. He kicked Mike Tirico's ball in a bunker when Tirico wasn't looking, the announcer, just so he could win a bet. He, he's, he's unabashed, unashamed, a cheater. He'll even win tournaments where he didn't play in them. He's done eight or nine times where he just buys a new course plays the first round by himself, declares that the club championship. And when he goes around the country saying, I've won 20 club championships, most of them are just con jobs. Right. You take on two claims that President Trump makes. First, that he has won uh, more than 20 club championships. And second, that his handicap is 2.8. Let's unpack these. So as for the club championships... Uh, You say this is an over-the-top, crazy-town lie. I think at the time that you wrote the book, he said he had 18 club championships. To win a club championship in golf is really hard because you have to play against the best players in the club, and you don't get any strokes. They're not giving you strokes, and it happens over two or three days. So the best amateurs I've known have won maybe four. He's telling people he won 20, and he's 73 years old. He's won two since he became president. But do you know how he did it? For instance, one he won. He was in the, the Singapore with Kim Jong-un. They were playing the club championship with the best players at Trump International in Florida, which is next to Mar-a-Lago. He comes back a month after they've played the tournament. A month. He sees the guy that won it and says, Hey, uh, Ted, his name was Ted. Congratulations, but you didn't really win because you didn't play me. And Ted's like, yeah, sure, he's laughing. And Trump's like, no, seriously, we're going to play these next six holes for the title. And then he cheated on the six holes, and suddenly this guy's name came down, and Trump's went up. It's insanity. It's so over the top, Ryan, that we we don't even know how to deal with this in golf. It's never happened. Let's talk about his handicap. So in golf, of course, the lower the number, the better. Uh, President Trump claims it's a 2.8. Uh, Now, people who know Trump's game and the game of golf very well say it's probably closer to a 9 or 10. Uh, That includes legends Ernie Els and Annika Sorenstam chiming in on Trump's game. Uh, Here's the thing. A 9 or a 10 is pretty darn good. Uh, As you write, only around 3% of men over 70 are single-digit handicaps. You you dig into why he feels he needs to claim a 2.8. And what do you find? Well, this 2.8 thing is a lie so full of hot air you could float it in the Macy's parade. I mean, it's ridiculous. So in golf, it's like cholesterol. The lower the number, the better it is. 
So a zero handicap means he can shoot even par pretty easily. You know, any better than that, you might as well turn pro. So just to give you an idea, Jack Nicholas right now, greatest golfer of all time, is a 3.5. <laughs> I mean, I saw John Elway the other day. He's a 3.2. John Elway can beat almost anybody you put him up against. But anybody who's played with Trump goes, eh, he's maybe a 10, 9. Tiger thinks he's a 10. Uh, most people think he's an 11 now or a 12. I don't know if you saw a video of him playing in Ireland. He had to hit a chip three times <laughs> because he kept chunking it and it kept rolling back to his feet. And that's why he always has a caddy with four balls in his pocket. And he himself has four balls in his pocket. And they're throwing it out of lakes and pretending he's on the green when he isn't and switching balls. And you're hitting and he's 200 yards ahead so he can foot wedge it and foozle it and fudge it into a nicer lie. And it's all just, it isn't golf. It's a whole sort of exercise in self-indulgence. And then he buys cheeseburgers and, and he's pretty nice. It seems to be the pivotal line from your book is a quote from one of your old coaches, actually. How you do one thing is how you do everything. You loaf in practice, you're going to loaf in the game. You cheat on your tests, you're going to cheat on your wife. Uh, it's really with this line that you're saying Trump's golf game speaks to something off the course. It, is that a leap? No, absolutely not. Two weeks ago at uh, Harvard Gulch in Denver, we had our Riley Roundup. I, I come from a very golfy family, and we grew up all playing public courses, and my dad was a golfer. And every day, since the day Jack Nicholas won his master's in a yellow shirt, my dad would wear a yellow shirt. And so we buried him in a yellow shirt. He loved Nicholas that much. I told Jack this. <laughs> and he, he loves loved Trump, he loved Nicholas, he loved golf, and he loved playing by the rules. So we played this tournament, we all wear yellow, and we play by the rules. We put it out. And no one says, oh, I'm in Florida, but I won the Riley Roundup. Or hey, I just shot uh, 97, but give me a 72, I'm the winner. We don't do that. That's not what we do in golf. How you do something like golf, which doesn't matter, reflects how you do everything. I wrote a line once, golf is like bicycle shorts. It reveals a lot about a man. And what it reveals about Trump is kind of ugly. I mean, my dad would turn over in his grave, and he's a lifelong Republican. He would turn over in his grave. Uh, Arnold Palmer would. I knew Arnold Palmer well. He said, I never enter into a business deal unless I've played four hours of golf with a guy. He says, because they can't hide who they are. I checked out the audiobook version of your book, uh, which you narrate, and uh, it requires you to do a kind of Trump impression when you quote him. <laughs> I, I'd like to listen to that encounter you had with him at Pebble Beach decades ago. At the time, uh, he's married to Marla Maples. Let's listen. You're my favorite writer, Trump <laughs> bellowed. I love your stuff. Tell him, Marla. He does, she said. Look. And she pulled out of her purse a column I'd written. Okay, there was the setup. What was the hook? So, he said, when are you going to write about me? Ah, there it was. Did you have to practice that? <laughs> you know, that was the first time I did. I think I've written 14 books. That was the first time I did the audio. But this book means so much to me, more than any book I've ever written. 
just it just pisses me off what he's doing to my game, driving on the greens and telling people he's won and not following etiquette. And so it really mattered to me. So I did the audio and I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, I gotta <laughs> I gotta try to sound like Trump. It's really bad, but I almost got blisters writing this book. I I just want people to know, Republican or Democrat, vote for him. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. I don't know about politics, but this guy has a twisted soul. If you're going to cheat your friends at golf, that is twisted. He's not the only president to cheat at golf, as you write. Um, there's Bill Clinton, who sometimes played pretty loose. Uh, but contrast Trump and Clinton's game for me a little bit, because you make a distinction. Well, right. I played with Bill Clinton when he was president. And his kind of cheating was because he didn't get to play much. He got to play maybe once once a month. And so he'd bring 24 clubs in his bag so he could try all these new clubs. And then he would hit his shot. And then he'd say, I'm playing that one. <laughs> it sounded like Trump. I'm playing that one. And But then he'd hit five or six what we call billigant, like Secret Service would go find it and bring it back. I always say it was kind of like uh, the guy that goes into the bank to steal the pen versus the guy that goes into the bank to steal the vault. Like, Clinton still sh- wasn't going to beat you. There was no money at stake. He just loved the game, and it would take six hours to play with Clinton, whereas Trump takes about three. So, it, yeah, he cheated, but it's like a, it's like this freshman team versus varsity team cheating. You know, one thing that just keeps haunting me from your book isn't actually about golf. It's about the first lady, Melania. She was born in Slovenia. But you recount a story in which Trump expresses that he doesn't like the sound of that. So he says, say you're from Austria. It sounds better. (laughs) Well, everything with Trump gets the Trump bump, we call it. I call it the Trump bump. Like, I stand eye to eye with Trump. He's six foot one. I'm six foot one. Suddenly, when it comes time to take his medical exam, he's six foot three, 239, which gets him just one point under the mass body index, so he's not obese. Trump Tower's 58 stories. But if you've ever been in Trump Tower, you know there's no 20 through 29th floor. So it's really only 48 floors. So my f- buddy's having friend uh, dinner with Melania and Trump and my buddy and his wife during the campaign, 2016. So the, the woman goes, Melania, where are you from? And she says, I am from Slovenia. And Trump, like his neck snapped. And she, he turned to her and said, say Austria, it sounds better. And so for like six months, she was telling people she was from Austria until the Slovenian press heard and got all angry. And so then she looks like a liar. And it's all this Trump bump baloney that he he tells you like, you know, He'd introduced me to a guy, this is Luigi. He was voted best spaghetti chef in the world. And Luigi's looking at me like, no, I wasn't. So I think he kind of loses track of what's real and what's a lie. He gets he gets numb to it. I mean, you also found that President Trump is generous with his fabrications. He plays with legendary golfer Lee Trevino at a Trump course. Trevino shoots a 72, but by the time Trump is done telling others about their game... He's brought Trevino's score down to a 66. And uh, Trevino says, I had to get out of there before I broke the course record. Um, but you, you, you lay out all the ways that President Trump fails to tell the truth when it comes to his golf game. You say it's so brazen, you almost admire it. Uh, and indeed, people who play with him 
also report having a lot of fun. Um, so here's a guy who flouts convention, puts on a great show, walks away declaring victory. Rick Riley, aren't these the ingredients that wins you the presidency? I guess. I mean, I guess you're right. He is the best manipulator of the truth. He just repeats a lie over and over again. He's repeated this lie about golf, that he's this great champion, and people believe it because I think I'm the first guy to come out and go, this is all bull. Don't believe it. Have Trump or his people responded to the book? No, just his kids have blocked me on Twitter. I'm begging for a tweet from the guy. He's, he always tweets fake news about any book that's, that paints him in an unflattering light. He has not tweeted. I think that's because I have a good friend who's a good friend of his. And I think he said, don't tweet about it because it's just going to drive up sales. Rick, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Sports writer Rick Riley, who grew up in Boulder and cut his chops at the Daily Camera and the Denver Post. He has written Commander in Cheat, How Golf Explains Trump. Still to come, a charming old church was set on fire. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A lot of folks out there question whether or not you can even get addicted to cannabis. Why would you say marijuana doesn't have addiction potential? This guy is here to tell you that it can happen, and it does happen. I mean, it's, it, 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 it obviously does. On the latest episode of On Something, Cannabis Addiction. Addiction is addiction, and stuff can ruin your life. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Someone set fire to a church in Morgan County, Colorado, a church that's on the National Register of Historic Places. It was built in 1915, so it's been around for 104 years. This is Morgan County Sheriff Dave Martin. It's been a local meeting place, gathering place for the Antelope Springs community, which when I say community, I don't mean that there's a town there because there's really not. It's a farm ranching area north of uh, Snyder, Colorado. There's a lot of people that travel there to look at the old church, switch drivers. It's a spot in the road where people can pull off the highway as well. The old Antelope Springs Methodist Episcopal Church is irresistible, sitting on the plains with faded white paint. Early Sunday morning, about 3 o'clock in the morning, one of the local residents spotted a vehicle leaving from the church, had its headlights off, which was unusual in itself that it was there at 3 in the morning, but also saw flames from inside the church, and they called 911. And fortunately for us, we were close to that area, and one of our deputies was able to make contact with the vehicle that was seen leaving the scene with its headlights off. I understand there was a gas can in the car, and they told me there was a flag inside the car that the deputy had recognized having been in the church himself before. Deputies made two arrests. A third suspect, a minor, turned himself in. Volunteer firefighters were able to get to the church quickly, so the damage was serious but not catastrophic. There's portions of that structure that are still standing, yes. So far, no motive for why this happened, but Sheriff Martin notes there was a second fire in the area around the same time at an abandoned farmhouse. There may be a connection. Uh, I have suspicion, but I don't have the evidence to support that right now. 
Sheriff Dave Martin from Morgan County, Colorado, that's east of Greeley. There are photos of the Antelope Springs Methodist Episcopal Church at CPR.org. What are the most extreme conditions life can withstand? Ice spires high in the Andes Mountains offer colorful clues. My colleague Avery Lill spoke with a Colorado researcher about life above 13,000 feet. The Nieves Penitentes, or Penitent Snows, look like praying monks in white robes. They form when sun and wind whittle away an icy snowbank. It looks like a cornfield, sort of, but these are big ice spikes, and they can be up to 15 feet tall, but they're usually a meter or two tall. And they're in even rows. They're just a bunch of ice spikes sitting there on the landscape. That's Steve Schmidt, a professor of ecology and environmental biology at the University of Colorado Boulder. Schmidt and his team explored these penitentes on the world's second highest volcano, Volcan Yuyayaco in Chile. That might sound bleak, but it turns out these are actually an oasis of life in an incredibly harsh environment. As we were just strolling around them, we noticed some red patches on the sides of some of these ice spires. So we sampled those while we were up there. And turns out no one has ever really studied these ice spires from a biological perspective. When we brought the samples back, it turned out they were loaded with um, snow algae, much like the watermelon snow that occurs in um, high elevation places in Colorado. Some varieties of algae they found have never been documented before. There were also a bunch of interesting fungi. And there were some odd bacteria as well. So there were some sort of cosmopolitan things that you would find around the world, but then there were also very unique creatures that we don't know what they're doing there. So how does algae manage to live in such harsh conditions above 13,000 feet? And their main adaptations are that they are capable of swimming through a thin water layer in semi-melted snow or ice. Their survival is dependent on them being able to migrate up through ice or snow. And they mate, and then as the snow melts they fall back into the soil underneath the ice pack or the snow and go dormant until they're activated again. So they they can stay dormant for a long time. These microorganisms have also made adaptations that could advance biotechnology. For example, these algae are colorful. They look like splashes of watermelon juice on the ice spires. Part of the reason they're red is because they're producing sunscreen-like compounds that protect them from the light. So that could be of interest, getting enzymes and so forth from these sorts of organisms. These ice spires even offer a glimpse of what life could look like on other planets. Scientists have discovered penitente-like spires on Pluto, and there's evidence that they may also be on one of Jupiter's moons. It's interesting as an analog system for studying potential life on extraterrestrial bodies. But Schmidt says... Climate change threatens these icy conditions at the Andes' highest elevations. These habitats are probably disappearing. Structures like these may not even occur if global warming keeps going. That's why Schmidt says it's important to study these now. I'm Avery Lill, CPR News. Finally this hour, it's been a couple of years since Denver native Megan Burt formed a new band with fellow songwriter Zach Berkman from New York and Sarah D. from Los Angeles. All three 
happen to be redheads, and so they call themselves Ginger Bomb. I had the name because I secretly, not secret anymore, want to be a DJ. And I had this name when I would one day become a DJ that I would be DJ Ginger Bomb. But I realized that we could create a band, make a record, and launch a band faster than I would become a DJ. So I just donated the name. Then we sort of reached our tentacles out into our social networks and let everybody know that we were looking for the most talented and most redheaded people. (laughs) We could find. (laughs) That's right. The name may be playful, but they are serious about their music. And they have a new single out this week. Company, according to the band, is about the people in our lives who walk alongside us and support us in our ups and downs. The family we choose. Never falling flat down on my face I've come close, but I've always Had someone to pick me up Never been the last one left behind Thought I was an even child Thought spinning wheels would make me tough This life has sure been kind to me And my will runs deep So when I die, please judge me by new music from Ginger Bomb with their song Company. The group will hit the road soon for a series of Colorado concerts, starting July 25th at the Dickens Opera House in Longmont, and wrapping up August 10th at Oscar Blues Grill in Lyons. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm a brunette. This is Ryan Warner at CPR News. They would not call me friend.